Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Padgett, a physical therapist, and I serve as secretary of the DDSIG. We're excited to bring you this special series of short podcasts, which highlight the winners of our 2020 Combined Section Meeting Awards. This year at CSM, our committee awarded two poster and two platform awards to standout presenters with topics relevant to degenerative diseases. We have put together a series of four podcasts interviewing the awardees and discussing their findings. And I'm here to talk with one of our poster winners from CSM this year. We are speaking with Christina Cologne Semenza, and she won our best poster in the applied and basic science category. The title of Christina's poster is effort-based decision-making for exercise in people with Parkinson's disease. Christina, welcome. And just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure, great. Thanks, Parm. And thank you so much to the DDSIG for having me. I am a research scientist at Boston University at the Center for Neurorehabilitation. And I am a physical therapist with a lot of years of experience, and I recently went back to school and completed my PhD at the Center for Neurorehabilitation, where I currently work. Cool. And so tell us uh, about this poster, sort of take us through the spiel that you would normally do at CSM if I were to walk up to your poster. Sure. Yes. Excellent. Really, the message is out there. Pretty much everyone who is following this literature knows that exercise is important for people with Parkinson's disease. And in fact, there even have been surveys that have done that tell us that people with Parkinson's disease themselves know that exercise is important. However, unfortunately, we still find that there is a significant portion of the population that is not following through with the recommendations and they're less active than their age-matched peers. And there have been lots of studies that kind of look at, well, what are the determinants or the predictors of those people who do follow through with the recommendations or who are exercisers. And pretty consistently, we come up with kind of the usual players that you might suspect that people who are older exercise less, people who have higher disease severity are less active, and then there are other studies that indicate people who have less walking capacity have are less active. So those are kind of some of the usual players. But unfortunately, there have not been a lot of investigations looking at some of these non-motor symptoms that we also are now coming to understand are so important in this disease progression and in outcomes. So what this study does is it focuses on trying to understand the role that motivation and apathy plays in decisions that people make for exercise. And we did this with a pretty novel, at least to the physical therapy world, a novel paradigm. So traditionally, motivation and apathy are measured using self-reported tools. So asking people questions like, well, there is a, a standardized test called the apathy scale, and this is the gold standard measure. 
and it asks people questions like, do you have energy for your daily activities or do you need a reminder to get up and go? So these kinds of questions that are self-reported. There is another, a more recent measure that's called the temporal experience of pleasure, the anticipatory scale. And this is a measure of the trait of how much you anticipate pleasure. And a, an example of this is it asks questions like, when you think of a chocolate chip cookie, do you just have to have one? Or um, when ordering something off the menu, do you imagine how good it will taste? So it's getting at the trait of how much someone really anticipates a reward or a pleasure. So those are two self-reported measures that we use. And those are pretty traditionally used when studying motivation. But what we did in this study is we used an objective measure of motivation that has individuals look at an effort level and a reward level for a physical task and then has them decide yes or no that that reward is worth that level of effort. And so traditionally what's done, and this is done, this has mostly been studied in the psychology literature. And this is commonly used with fine motor tasks like having people do a button pressing task or using a handheld dynamometer and squeezing it really hard. Um, and so they're looking at how does this physical effort relate to a, a reward amount. And it has been shown that people with Parkinson's disease are less willing to exert effort for reward when the rewards are low. So we used these three different ways to measure motivation. And then we were looking at how do these things all fit together, including the other components that have been traditionally found to be important, like age, as well as walking capacity and disease severity. So Christina, can you give us an example of like, what was the reward structure? Right. So for example, the standard paradigm, they might say, are you willing to work at your maximum effort with this button pressing task, which in my case was using your non-dominant pinky finger and pressing a keyboard button as fast as you can for 30 seconds. And so that you, you do that and that gets, gives you your stand, um, your maximum effort level. And then it proceeds to ask you, okay, so we want you to work now at a, at a minimum effort, at a moderate effort, or, and at a high effort. And then it will be paired with a monetary amount and say, would you be willing to work at high effort for $5.33? Yes or no. And you decide yes or no to that what I did in this study is I modified the paradigm to not be this fine motor task. And we used cycling, stationary cycling as the effort under consideration. So my question was really so great. We're finding that people with Parkinson's disease are having different decision-making processes when it's this effort that's really not related to real world environments. So I was trying to increase the ecological validity and bring it closer to home with this exercise task. So this, in this case, we had people based on their age predicted maximum heart rate, as well as a rating of perceived exertion, cycle for five minutes at low, medium, or high effort and had them consider, experience that. And then once they experienced that, they had to make these decisions. Is it worth it, yes or no, for me to now cycle for five minutes for $3.33, yes or no. And they made 36 of these decisions and they were told at the end, you will have to perform three of the ones that you say yes to 
so that they understand that there really is going to be some physical effort that will be exerted for um, based upon these decisions. Okay, so let me just re reiterate that so that um, sure, I make sure that I'm understanding. So you basically, you have people make these decisions, yep. you gave them a scenario, you know, moderate intensity for five minutes and you would get $10 or whatever the yep. amount was. Correct. And they made yep. a decision, yes or no. Yep. And then randomly you picked three of the yeses. Exactly. And made them do it. Yes, okay. exactly. Yes. Well, made them. <laughs> that, ask not necessarily. Ask them. <laughs> yes, we asked them then at the end. Okay, you said yes to these. Now you have the opportunity to win the monetary amount that's associated with what you said yes to. You said you were willing to do high effort for $4.27. Okay, here's your opportunity to win that $4.27. They knew that everyone who was involved knew that they were getting a gift card, um, a base gift card of it was $20, but they had the opportunity to increase the value of their gift card based upon um, whether or not they actually did this these tasks. So you would give them the $4.27. Right, so that they knew that there was money, really money, really reward attached to this. And I did try to um, explain to people, you know, because we weren't talking about big sums of, sums of money, you know, it, this right. wasn't going to the casino and winning, you know, $100 at the slot machine. This was penny change, really, for most people. So I tried to get the point across to individuals. This Don't think of it as, I know you're not going to, you know, this isn't going to allow you to retire from your participation in this experiment, but I want you to think of it about it more as like a game that there are, that it's a points game. And so is it worth it? Yes or not for you to do this? Make that determination in your mind. Is it worth it? Yes or no? And then make your decision because that's what we were really trying to get at. How much reward does it take to get someone to say yes to effort? And how many people did you do this with? So yes, we had 32 people with Parkinson's disease and we had 23 age and education matched controls. Okay, and what did you find? And so, yeah, so what we found was that surprisingly enough, our samples were really comparable. So they were matched on age and education, um, but surprisingly in the demographics, we also found that they were pretty well matched in terms of everything else that we measured. So they had similar measures of self-reported physical activity, similar measures for um, their walking capacity, similar measures for their geriatric depression scale. Um, so they looked a lot alike. So that's kind of context to set the stage for our results, because what we actually found was that there wasn't a difference in their decision-making process, that their decisions were similar, that the presence of Parkinson's disease was not a factor that helped us to understand decisions. So, and that was not what I was hypothesizing. I was hypothesizing that people with Parkinson's disease were going to say no more frequently. So that was a surprise, but that's how science goes. But what we did from there was we did additional exploratory analyses to see how, um, when just looking in the group of people with Parkinson's disease, what factors could help us to understand their decision-making process. So in that, we did logistic regressions to see what would say, what, what increases individuals' likelihood of saying yes. 
And what we found in that is that these measures of motivation, the apathy scale and the anticipation of pleasure scale, those were both significant predictors of whether or not someone was likely to say yes to effort. And, and in fact, this, this was also a surprise. So lots of surprises. Um, age did come up to be significant in both of um, these logistic regression models that we had, but walking capacity nor did disease severity um, help us to understand or it wasn't a determinant or a, um, a factor in helping to explain whether or not someone would say yes or no to effort. So that was yet another surprise. So kind of these things that constantly are supported in the literature didn't follow through in this case when looking at um, decisions for exercise. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's, it's just a side note, interesting to think about studies and when you really look at how they're designed, they, they have bias in them. Like it's so hard to really control for that. And Absolutely. so I think that, that, that there's a lot of that. And, and then like anecdotally, a lot of times what you see is opposite to sort of what you expect based on other studies you've read, like particularly the disease severity. I mean, yeah. if somebody thinks they're an exerciser or they have yeah. a history and they have that high self-efficacy, they're gonna do they're gonna figure it out. They're gonna keep doing it. And I mean, example after example of people with low, low, low levels of mobility and high disease severity that are like trying super hard <laughs> to exercise. Yes. So yes. I think that I think that that's an interesting point, right? Like, is this maybe something that that gets at that more, that apathy in particular, I think is, you know, is, is a way to separate people out more than disease severity. Absolutely, so I, that is a great point that you bring up and I'm glad that we're able to discuss this here because one of the really important challenges and lessons learned from doing this study is that often, especially in the population and database of people that we have at the Center for Neurorehabilitation, these are people who are already drinking the Kool-Aid. They love to exercise. They right. are already reaping the benefits from exercise. They, they've often been to our center and are working with our therapists who have told them how important exercise is. So actually in the manuscript writing up this study, that it, we talk about this in the discussion, that the, these results are very specific to a group of individuals who are active. Like I said, these people, their self-reported physical activity level is similar to people without Parkinson's disease. So these are active individuals who believe in exercise. And you're right, we didn't measure self-efficacy in this study, but they likely do have very high levels of self-efficacy. And so that was related that was an influence on their decision-making likely all of these other factors that we're talking about and demand characteristics. They know that I'm a physical therapist and the research assistants are physical therapists at our center and we all value exercise. So although again, we tried to tell them the decisions that you make here, there is no right or wrong answer. This is just us trying to understand motivation and decisions to set them up to, to be free to make whatever decision they really felt like. But you're right, the demand characteristics of knowing, oh, I know they're physical therapists and they love exercise and they want me to say yes to exercise all of the time, absolutely played a role in this study. Yeah. So yeah. one of the things that we like to do in this podcast is sort of like 
keep it real? Like how, like how can this help me as a physical therapist going to see a patient? Yeah. Um, and so, so what do you think? Like yeah. as somebody who has a long history of patient care, how would yeah. you take these findings and yeah. adjust your physical therapy intervention? Yeah, and thank you for that question because yes, it is basic science and we are doing these, you know, 36 times decisions. I realize that's not how the real world works either, right? So there is some difficulty with direct translation of these findings to real world. But in my take home message, what I take away from this for, with my clinical glasses on is that I, as a, as a clinician, was not paying attention enough to the context of someone's motivation levels when they are coming to me. Um, and even I think about, you know, I would give people this piece of paper and say, okay, so now go ahead and do this piece of paper and I'll see you next time. And then when they come back, I might give them another piece of paper. And then they come to me and say, oh my gosh, I have this folded of piece of papers and maybe I didn't follow up on those exercises. Maybe I didn't set them up for, for success. So in studying motivation, I think it has helped me to understand that in the past, I might've said, oh, that person didn't do their, didn't do their exercises. They're non-compliant, you know, but whatever, that's, up, that's their, their ball. I gave them the exercises. I told them what to do and they're not following through with that. So mm -hmm. that's too bad, I guess. So now I have a better understanding that my role is to understand what is that patient? What is the context? What are they coming to me with? Is this that person that's highly motivated, who's already drunk the Kool-Aid, who has that high self-efficacy, who already is reaping the rewards of exercise? Okay, great. Then maybe that piece of paper is adequate for that patient. But if not, if this is someone's maybe, they're not a lifetime exerciser, they have not felt rewards maybe from exercise in the past. Maybe they've only had pain associated with exercise in the past or have, ha have been defeated and they don't have that high self-efficacy. Um, then that person likely needs to be given a more structured plan where I'm going to be setting them up with specific goals. I am going to be giving them feedback and checking in on how was that exercise? How did you do with that? So it looks like you did it, you know, three times, even though I asked you to do it four, can you tell me more about that? So I think that understanding the context, the motivation, the self-efficacy levels that your patient is coming to you with helps to then continue on that relationship and helps to get them either supported or started on that exercise and, and or physical activity program. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it helps really to build that um, partnership between you and your patient because you're acknowledging that it's hard and everybody comes with their own unique challenges and that that's what we're dealing with and I'm here to help you. So I think that that's a huge message. Absolutely, absolutely. So Christina, I wanna congratulate you on winning this award. We were very excited about your poster and um, the committee, you know, as they were reviewing the different posters was like, definitely saw this as a standout. So that's great. Thank you. So, so, you know, we're curious for somebody like you, that's a new researcher and has, I'm sure a gazillion million questions. What's next? What's coming next? Yeah. So 
those are great questions. And yes, there are so many questions. I have to sometimes shut off the question part of my brain because I could just go down a rabbit hole of questions mm -hmm. all of the time. But in understanding motivation for exercise, I think really as I start to delve into this further, I'm realizing that there are so many pieces to this motivation puzzle. There is not just one answer to what is that factor, right? A lot of these studies are trying to isolate, you know, just a few, but I think it is beyond often even the factors that are being looked at in the study. So maybe one study is looking more at these non-motor symptoms. Some, is lo some are looking at um, these motor symptoms, but it's, I think, a large puzzle that helps us to understand motivation. So in my future study, a future project that I would love to have that's kind of pie in the sky is creating some sort of assessment tool that helps physical therapists to understand several of these components that when my patient walks in the door, I can give them a quick and easy assessment tool that's gonna get, that is going to get at a lot of these things that we already know it. So like maybe the quick question on self-efficacy, a quick question on past exercise experience, a quick question on socialization with exercise, if you're a social mm -hmm. exerciser. Um, so a whole bunch of these quick questions that can be a compilation of what we've learned, you know, age would be in there and these other physical factors that we know that are important. So that would help to maybe give someone a motivation score. And then that could help to direct you to know how much of your effort as a therapist you need to devote to that person's motivation levels or apathy levels for that, for that matter. So knowing, having this broad picture of the context to help the therapist and the patient achieve success in their, their exercise and physical activity. So that's one big pie in the sky project. Yeah, that, and that sounds awesome. I mean, we, we would love it. Yes, I would love that too. Yeah, so next year we want to talk to you about that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. I, I, give me a few more years, maybe, okay. maybe two or three on that one. Shorter okay. term, though, another project that I'm really excited about is a previous publication I did was on peer coaching for people with Parkinson's disease, and it was oh, just fun. a small pilot study. Yeah, but it was really, it was really great. So what we did is we took people with Parkinson's disease who were already successful exercisers and matched them up to individuals with PD who weren't as active. And we paired them, giving them a Fitbit, and they spoke over the phone once a week together for eight weeks. They, um, the peer coach helped the peer mentee to establish a physical activity walking goal. And then they saw each other's Fitbit collected data, and they chatted about challenges and goal achievement. And over eight weeks, and we saw in four out of the five peer pairs, there were large differences in um, walking activity and our qualitative data told us that people really loved this they want they a lot of them maintained relationships after yeah. to help motivate each other after that and so that was just a small pilot study there is now an app that i'm actually um working with an individual who has created an app to connect people with disease conditions get together so that they can find each other and be exercise buddies remotely. And so I think it's really timely with our current societal situation that we're in with the coronavirus. And yeah. a lot, as we know, a lot of people with Parkinson's disease are getting together physically to exercise. 
And in this model, it's kind of, I explain it to people, it's kind of like match.com, but where the goal is not a romantic relationship, it is an exercise relationship. Yeah. And it's focused on communities of people with a disease condition. Um, yeah. So the idea is people with Parkinson's disease could find each other and support each other in exercise and physical activity right. um, remotely. So we yeah. are going to be working on a, uh, a project to test this out in people with Parkinson's disease. That's awesome. And, and, you know, interestingly, you're right in this current climate, we, we need stuff like that. Um, I think a lot of therapists and group exercise programs are figuring it out on the fly, unfortunately. But yep. in our last podcast, we talked with Tara McIsaac and she made the point that there is nobody like someone else who is going through the same thing that you're going through. And so to, absolutely to do that, you know, to have that peer relationship is huge. It's awesome. Absolutely. So we want to give you the opportunity to thank your collaborators for this effort. Absolutely. Yes, I would love to. So yes. I would love to thank Dr. Dan Fulford, who is in the Department of Occupational Therapy at Boston University, and Mar Mariah Warren, who was a graduate student in as well at Boston University. And finally, Dr. Terry Ellis, who is the director of the Center for Neurorehabilitation at Boston University. So thank you to all of them. And th thank you to all of you guys for having me. This was a pleasure and an honor. Yeah, this was really fun. And we're definitely looking forward to having you back in the future to talk about all these exciting things that you're up to. Thank you so much, Parm. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Christina. We hope you enjoyed this special edition of 4D, highlighting an awardee from CSM 2020. This podcast was produced by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. Please share this podcast with a friend or colleague. Thank you to our volunteers, Liz Yates-Horton, Casey Houlihan, and Rose Gallagher. Special thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. This podcast was edited by Sarah Crandall, with help from Parm Paget and Katie McGraw. I might need You're to in make, and out a little. I might need to make the kids get off the internet. Turn it off for just until 8.15. I'll be down to 8.15 or before that. That's a wrap. <laughs>